Well, hello, welcome to Deep in Church History. My name is William Hemsworth, and thank you so much for joining me on this Friday afternoon here on KKMC. Hope everyone has had a great week so far. You know, it's spring, and um, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Um, you know, keep people in prayer, especially you know those in Nebraska. You know, a lot of the state is flooded. Just some of the stuff going on is crazy, and of course, all the shootings that have been happening. Um, Pray for all those victims and their families as well. But guys, what I want to do is something a little different today. What I want to do over the course of today's show is, of course, you know, the show is called Deep in Church History. So what we're going to do is, not to use a pun, but go deep into church history here. And we're going to look at some of the early Christological heresies that the early church had to deal with. And these these heresies are significant because without the church dealing with them we wouldn't have the developed Christology um, that we have today you know so if if Arianism would have won out we wouldn't have Jesus as a divine being if adoptionism would have won out we would have said okay that a regular man somehow at some point in time became God incarnate, that God, that soul of God was infused into this normal everyday man. Or we could say that Jesus only had one nature and not two natures, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. And so, yeah, we're going to go deep in churches. We're going we're gonna to go into the earliest centuries of the church, really the earliest days of the church. And we're going to look at things like adoptionism, Apollinarianism, uh, Nestorianism, of course, Arianism, and maybe a few other isms. But um, either way, I think it's beneficial. It's beneficial to look at our roots as a Christian people, to see where we came from, to appreciate where we're at. Not only where we're at, but where what the early church, what the early Christians had to deal with because it wasn't easy. And I think sometimes we have that misguided notion that somehow our theology has always been the way it is today, and it hasn't. It really, really hasn't. And so when we, when we think of the early days of Christianity, like I said, we have this tendency to think about our ancestors in the faith in today's terms. We may think that the churches they met in, we, we may think that they went to a church building, but in all actuality, they actually met, met in homes. They were home churches when they first started. And we may think that every doctrine that we hold to today was laid out the same back then. Unfortunately, it's this is this fact could not be further from the truth. The early church dealt with many issues. And like I said a moment ago, one of the key issues was over Christology, or the person of Christ. When it comes to Christology, the early church specifically had to deal with adoptionism and docetism. These are two Christologies that were heretical in nature, but they were attractive to people because they answered some lingering questions that had not been answered. Before those answers are discussed, I want to define these terms first. A 
Adoptionism is a Christological belief that Jesus was adopted as the Son of God either after his baptism, resurrection, or in some cases that I read even after his ascension, which is really weird. Um, this view was seen in many parts of early Christianity. But a writer by the name of Apollinarius wrote about it extensively. We'll get to him a little later on. Now, regarding this, um, theologian Richard Norris writes, quote, The divine Logos became human in the sense that he became embodied and thus shared the structural constitution of a human being. Now, in the view of adoptionism, Christ only became Christ after he was adopted, after spending his life doing God's will. So, in other words, he was not born with two natures. The other Christological view to be that I want to talk about briefly is um, docetism. Docetism was an early form of Gnosticism, which taught that all matter was evil. Since all matter was evil, it stands to reason that Christ was not crucified. They saw no need for the Son to make himself involved in physical matters. Many church fathers, such as St. Irenaeus and Tertullian, fought against the growth of this sect. The sect hated the flesh and taught that the, the divine spirit left the person of Christ before he died on the cross. They failed to realize that man was made in God's image. And even with all its faults, the flesh is an object of God's love and grace. These two theories became popular. And for a time they even thrived, because they answered two questions. Firstly, was whether a mediatorial logos, when he becomes incarnate, can honestly be understood as God present in a person. Secondly, if the idea of the incarnation was a contradiction. There were several reasons why these two theories were rejected. In the case of adoptionism, it simply contradicts Scripture. Scripture teaches in many places that the Son always was and was, was not something that came later. One such passage is John 1.1, which states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This shows that Christ always was, and since, the, and since the womb, Christ was fully human and fully divine. For a sacrifice on the cross to be redemptive, it had to be a sinless offering. This could not have happened if it was a man who was adopted at 30 years of age. In the case of docetism, scripture also states that Christ willingly put on the flesh. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, which says, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. This shows, this shows again that if Christ was not also flesh, then the, Christ, the cross meant nothing, and we're still dead in our trespasses and our sin. So think about that for a moment. It's very important. Now another one I want to talk about briefly is Arian, is, uh, 
Arianism. And over the course of church history, there are many issues and false teachings that arose. Um, one such false teaching involved a priest by the name of Arius. Arius was a student of Lucian of Alexandria and was ordained around 311. He started to make waves when he publicly denied the teaching of the Trinity, which was being taught by his bishop, Alexander. He was able to do this because he was he was a really charismatic and brilliant orator. The guy could talk. But he also laced his verbiage with just enough orthodoxy that some fell for his teaching. Through the whole Arian controversy, the church was forced to clarify the relationship between the Son and the Father. See, Arianism was a huge issue, and it had the potential to rip the infant church apart. Now, what was his teaching, and what was so bad about it? In short, Arius was teaching that Christ was not divine. Or more specifically, he just wasn't of the same substance of the Father. So, the Father existed first, and created and created the Son, who in turn created everything else, at least according to Arius. He took passages of scripture, such as Matthew 28, 18, and took it to mean that Christ was somehow less than the Father. Arius's bishop, again, Bishop Alexander, was very concerned over this development with Arius. Now, there was a time where he ignored, he ignored it and just thought it would eventually cease. But when it became apparent that Arius was becoming more influential, Alexander had to act. Bishop Alexander called a synod that publicly anathematized the teachings of Arius. One of the ways that Bishop Alexander and the synod did this was very interesting. Alexander took Arius's Christology to task by showing that Arius denied the immutability of the Father. Arius did this because in his view the Father was not immutable until the Son was created. Now, though this synod acted swiftly to defend Christian orthodoxy, Arianism stood for a while. This came to the attention of Emperor Constantine um, via his bishop, Osius. Now, as I said just a moment ago, this issue had the potential to end in schism, and this would have been, had horrible consequences, not only for the young church, but for the Roman Empire as a whole. Uh, the Council of Nicaea was called, and in all, 318 bishops were in attendance, and two papal legates were in, were in attendance because Pope Sylvester was too elderly to make the long journey. The council fathers heard what Arius had to say, but they also listened to what St. Athanasius had to say. They defended the doctrine of Christ by declaring that he is of the same substance as the Father, but not the Father. Since he is of the same substance, he has always existed and is eternal. The Logos knows all things before their origination, and St. Athanasius showed that this was an attribute of God, since God alone can know all things. The council declared that Christ was of the same substance by using the Greek word homoousios, which means, literally, of the same substance. So, the teaching of Arius regarding Christ forced the church to formally define the nature of Christ. It actually led to the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea. And the council fathers used a combination of scripture and tradition to defend the deity of Christ. 
the canons that they laid out at Nicaea are still binding on the church, and is that still what the church teaches today? And in fact, as Catholic, I'm, I'm a Catholic, guys, so in every Catholic Mass, the Nicene Creed is said every week to remind us of this fact. So let's talk a little bit more about this term that was coined, homoousios. That term holds a very important distinction. And like we just mentioned a moment ago, the word became famous at the Council of Nicaea because that was used to define Christ's deity. The word means of the same substance and was used to say that Christ was of the same essence of the Father. Okay. And like I said a moment ago as well, all 318 bishops that were present at Nicaea defended, defended the divinity of Christ. But not all of them agreed with using this term as a descriptor. That's because the historical roots of the word were used by Paul the Samosota in defending earlier Christological heresies. And so because of that, <coughs> my apologies guys, I'm getting over a cold too. But because of that, some bishops were very weary of using it. But um, the term is used um, to mean of the same substance and to reaffirm the divinity of Christ. So it's a very important term, and it's used in other subsequent councils, such as Ephesus, Chalcedon, uh, Constantinople, which is also known as Nicaea II. So at the top of the show, I was I briefly mentioned a person by the name of Apollinarius or Apollinaris. It's called spelled A P O L L I N A R I S, and he's a figure in the early church, and he has a share of controversy. Um, at the age of twenty, he was excommunicated for singing a hymn to the Greek god Dionysius. He eventually would come back to Christianity and confess the newly formed Nicene Creed under the tutelage of Basil of Caesarea. In 360, he became Bishop of Laodicea and was a supporter of St. Athanasius in his battle against the Arians. Now, Apollinarius sought to circumvent the Arian view that Christ was a created being. He had good intentions here. He sought to deny the notions that the Logos dwelled within the human nature of Christ and wanted to establish and affirm two natures, the human and divine nature of Christ. He argued that Christ's humanity could only result through divine union. In his letter on the union of Christ and the Godhead, Apollinarius writes, quote, And in this regard he differs from every other body, for he was conceived in his mother, not in separation from the Godhead, but in union with it. In his view, this had to happen when the Logos would have descended upon a man, and that would mean that Jesus was just an ordinary man at that time. So, it was kind of like an adoptionist mentality that we just talked about. And this is exactly what he was looking to avoid. Now, from what I read briefly from what Apollinarius wrote, his view on Christ appears to have been orthodox. But later on, he strayed, and not really intentionally either. His desire to oust the Arian view would lead him into a bit of Christological trouble himself. This all comes down 
to his definition of man. In the orthodox view, man is made up of flesh and a soul. Apollinarius took it a step further and taught a two-soul theology. In his view, man has an animal soul and a rational soul. And again, we're going to re read what Apollinarius wrote. He wrote, quote, But the flesh is not soulless, for it is said to fight against the spirit and to resist the law of the intellect. And we say that even the bodies of beasts without reason are endowed with a soul. To complete the humanity of Christ, Apollinarius says the animal soul was necessary, but the unity with the Godhead came to be when the rational soul of Christ became unified with the Logos. This unity replaced and even eliminated the human soul of Christ. There's a problem here. Christ has two natures, not one merged nature. So this position was rejected. But let's discuss why briefly. The human soul, as most of us can vouch for, is weak and can be swayed. In the view of Apollinarius, this soul was replaced by a union by excuse me, by a unity with the Logos. If the human soul of Christ was replaced, that would mean that Christ was not completely human. He may have had flesh, but if his soul was replaced by a unity with the Logos, then Jesus would lack a basic humanity. In short, he would not be able to identify with what we go through, as Hebrews 4.15 states. Therefore, humanity is in the same condition it was before, because the human nature of Christ was eliminated. Now, another key issue that came up in the early church regarding uh, Christology um, was defined at the Council of Ephesus. And this is where some of my listeners may get a little offended, but, you know, it's church history. Um, so some would, take a, some would take a piece of scripture and develop a whole theology without properly exegeting or considering what other scriptures say on an issue. And so to put it in modern terms, they were proof texting, but on a very grandiose scale. And it's uh, on a scale where souls are at stake. Now, the Council of Ephesus was called to discuss the unity of Christ. More specifically, how can, how can Jesus be truly God and truly human? So you may see a theme in the early church. You're asking a lot of questions on, this two, on the two natures of Christ. As if this issue weren't enough to cause division, there was a kind of a political component as well. Uh, the Christian patriarchs of Antioch, Constantinople, and Alexandria had a rivalry which stemmed from Constantinople calling itself the New Rome. At the center of the council were two bishops by the name of Nestorius and Cyril of Alexandria. Nestorius was a priest who, would became, who became the patriarch of Constantinople. He was trained in Antioch, which had a very good reputation of defending the humanity of Christ. This tradition starts with diversity in Christ, through two natures, and then gets into trouble when trying to explain how they come together. In attempting to explain the humanity of Christ, Nestorius looked at the Blessed Virgin Mary. Most churches at the time called Mary the Theotokos, or Mother of God. Nestorius made the suggestion that Mary should have the title of Theodokos, 
or recipient of God. Later on, he would make the suggestion to call her Christotokos, or Mother of Christ. By doing this, Nestorius was making an attempt to preserve the humanity of Christ, but the way he did so was complex, and in the end it failed to preserve the unity of Christ, or his two natures. And we call this Nestorianism. Now, Nestorius used a Stoic concept of what makes an individual in his argument. So he said properties are inseparable to the person, and Nestorius believed that Christ should exist as two individuals, or the Greek word hypostasis, or two-person, prosopon. He didn't believe that natures changed, which is good because that would make him like Apollinarius about a century earlier. Since natures can't change, Nestorius proposed that there was a, a third person involved. Problem is, Christ only has two natures. And a third nature or being involved is a big Christological problem. Hearing the argument of Nestorius, Cyril took the opportunity to say that Christ was one individual. He did this by employing the term miaphesis, or one nature. To Cyril, the view of Nestorius implied that there were two different Christs. By saying that there is one nature, Cyril is not saying that Christ did not have a human nature. He is saying that there is a human soul that is in union with his divinity. This term became known as the hypostatic union, and it's still a term that we use for it today, for two natures being in union with each other, not fused together, just in union. Nestorius was eventually condemned at the Council of Ephesus for his two sons' doctrine. Now Cyril, um, this is kind of where politics gets involved here, was kind of uncharitable to Nestorius, and kind of called, he called him a new Judas. The council rightly confirmed the orthodox position of Mary being the Theotokos, or mother of God, because Jesus is God incarnate, and Mary gave birth to Jesus. Therefore, Mary is mother of God. Yes, guys, it is that simple. This does not mean that she's the mother of God the Father or anything else. It is really that simple. She gave birth to the whole person of Christ, not just his humanity. To think the divine came later would be a type of adoptionism. So that'd be like saying that Mary gave birth to the person of Jesus, but not his divine side. You can't have it both ways. Either she gave birth to the human, to the person of Jesus who has two natures, human and divine, or she didn't. To say she didn't would fall into heresy. That we divine the two natures that Christ had. This council was crucial in upholding the humanity and the divinity of Christ. And it was one that we look today um, for those who deny the, theo the Theotokos. You guys, we have enough time to cover one more. We're going to look briefly at the Council of Chalcedon. And it took, it took place quickly after Ephesus, just 20 years after. But it had a huge impact on Christology. I mean, huge. The Council came about because of a new teaching on the nature of Christ by a monk by the name of Eutychus. To summarize his view, he taught that Christ had two natures, but after they were united, they formed only one nature. He was an opponent of Nestorius, and his way of describing the nature of Christ was damaging. 
Um, his way of putting it seems to destroy both the humanity and divinity of Christ. Um, sadly, his view is not far off from what many Christians hold today. So Chalcedon affirmed that the natures of Christ do not change, and in doing so they avoided Nestorianism. However, the story of the council started before before that with, with like I said, with Eutychus. Upon hearing of Eutychus' explanation regarding the nature of Christ, Patriarch Flavian felt that he had to respond to the matter. Flavian, who was the Patriarch of Constantinople, held a synod and condemned the teaching of Eutychus. Flavian was upholding Orthodox teaching, but issues of Christology were still being worked out in the ancient world. Eutychus would event Eutychus would eventually find an ally with the Bishop of Alexandria by the name of Dioscorus, who happened to be Cyril of Alexandria's uh, cousin. Now, this council disposed of, Patri of Patriarch Flavian and restored Eutychus. But prior to this disposition, Pope Leo had sent a letter of support to Flavian, accepting the decision of the synod he held on behalf of the whole church. Pope Leo called the council that reinstated Eutychus, Eutychus a rubber synod and invoked the authority of the Roman church. Leo's demand for a new council was answered and Bishop Dioscorus was removed from his bishopric immediately. The council's statement of faith was not trying to declare how the natures of Christ could be, but was declaring what over 400 years of Christian witness could not deny. The council reiterated the two natures of Christ, which was a concern Nestorius had, though he argued for it in a heretical manner. The council also affirmed the view held by Cyril of Alexandria at the Council of Ephesus within the tradition established at Nicaea. The Tome of Leo was also a factor in the definition of Chalcedon. The definitions at Chalcedon affirm the creeds of Nicaea and Constantinople when it comes to defining the redemption of the person of redemption and the person of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. The council also stated that the extreme forms of Christological tradition and the Antiochian and the Alexandrian schools were now condemned. The definition is closed with a statement that was composed based on the wishes of the emperor. This statement draws for its language on Cyril, Leo, and the formula of reunion. It emphasizes the unity of Christ in his complete deity and complete humanity. More importantly, it says that Christ exists in two natures and not out of two natures. It's because of this language that the definition accepts the emphasis of both Antiochian and Alexandrian schools. Anyway, guys, that was a rough and tumble walkthrough or sprint-through of early Christological heresies. Um, some of those are still around today, and I hope this helps determine what is orthodox and what is not. Uh, guys, uh, Deep in Church History is a listed and supported program, so if you want to support the cause, please visit my Patreon page at patreon.com backslash William Hemsworth, and visit my website at williamhemsworth.com as well. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. God bless you all. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deep in Church History. God bless you.